Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. This episode of Working Dog Radio is brought to you in part by the best training conference on the planet, HITS K9 Training and Conference, www.hitsk9.net, or call Jeff Barrett, 863-529-5113. We'll see you there. One of our other great sponsors, be sure to check them out, Ray Allen Manufacturing up in Colorado Springs, rayallen.com. Be sure to use the discount code WORKINGDOGRADIO for 10% off. Spell it out, get the discount. Everyone knows Ted and I are huge fans of Dogtra. Uh, we use all their products, lots of stuff. Dogtra.com, use the discount code WDR10 for 10% off a single item over $200. All right, everybody loves drag and drop the easiest way possible. The easiest way to get a kennel up and running is to get them from Horizon Structures. Go to horizonstructures.com or call 1-888-447-4337. Make sure you tell them that Working Dog Radio sent you. There you go. One of our newest sponsors and one of our favorites, Kinetic Dog Food. Kineticdogfood.com or call 512-279-8966. Get your dog on the right track. One of our other fantastic sponsors that are run by the Heiser, some of the best people in the industry. We love those guys. Uh, looking for a reputable canine kennel with dog sales and training services? They're located in sunny New Smyrna, Florida. Southern Coast Canine provides services worldwide from purchasing your next single or dual-purpose working dog to handler courses and seminars. Southern Coast is a great resource, so check them out. And where you can check them out is Southern Coast Canine. That's letter K, number 9.com, or give them a call, 877-903-DOGS. That's dogs. All right, everybody, we are back. Uh, Ted Summers here, Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bike. This is episode three of the Ladies of Canine. This is our, what is our third series for this, Eric? Right? Yeah. This is our third series uh, yeah, for this. Yeah, third series. Yeah, this is our third series for Ladies of Canine. Uh, we got some, <laughs> we kind of postponed a little bit this year for the Rona um, and moving some other guests around and everything else. But it's uh, definitely, uh, definitely, Number number for the third season for third series of seasons. So, yeah, uh, I'm in Tulsa. Summer has uh, officially arrived. Um, it is just ridiculously hot here. Uh, we're starting our handler schools at like 7 a.m. <laughs> I've got dudes out tracking at 7 a.m. and by noon, they're all looking at me, and I'm like, I know <laughs> it sucks, but you'll be you're not gonna die. I promise. So. Um, we had a dog, uh, a local dog, die recently. Last couple, couple, couple weeks ago, um, Muskogee PD, he died. Uh, Canine Ollie, uh, Travis and I went to his funeral yesterday. Uh, we don't, they don't think it was heat stroke, uh, but uh, they'd done some tracking and he was then non-responsive after. But uh, it was pretty, it was pretty interesting to go. And I mean, the mayor was there, chief, uh, city council, there's a ton of civilians there, lots of neighboring agencies, and so. Uh, it was good, but uh, he was an angry, angry little dog for sure. He's going to be missed. But uh, Eric, what are you doing? Um, helping out, you know, it's still a little bit with the Canton class. <clears throat> They're done. They test the 31st. They're going to be finished. But um, my buddy Scott came uh, came up today and picked up uh, Joda, that, that thick English lab that I have that I trained up for uh, oh, yeah, yeah. narcotics. He came came and picked him up and uh, hung out for a little bit i like scott man we we went to uh he owns a company called next level kennels down in north carolina we we went to lunch today and he 
he it was real touching, man. He told me it's crazy how we met through different things in the podcast and you've met him and we're friends and how timing of certain podcasts that we've done has affected his business. He he was telling me he was <clears throat> excuse me, him and his wife were getting ready to pull the trigger on a on a big kennel move from New York to Pennsylvania and he listened to Aaron Taylor's episode about running a business and Aaron had said if you're not if you're not ready to lose 20 grand, like if you lost 20 grand right now and it would cripple you, do not make that business decision. And it was like he was talking right to him. And they they stopped the business move, waited a little bit, and then ended up finding a, a different place in North Carolina. And the timing was right with the sale of their house and everything. He made a bunch of money. It was it was awesome, man, to listen to him tell how, how it's all affected him. But uh, so, yeah, we're just doing that. And um Going tomorrow to pick up another dog and rolling along. That's right. You're going to see our buddy David. Yeah. From Black Rock. Yeah. Should yeah. be fun. Interesting. So, um, so for the third installment and the, the third installment of the third series of the Lazy Canine, who do we have? Uh, <clears throat> so we went a little bit different. Um, we, uh, Got away from just, you know, we, we listen, ladies also, we don't just interview you for three series. You know, that's it. We, we do have ladies on throughout the year. But um, we wanted to go away from just somebody who does just training or somebody who just does handling. Uh, we love all those folks. But we wanted to go kind of um, a different route, especially in the wake of the way things have been going. Um, Ted and I had talked about wanting to have a guest on who can talk about some things that are like – working dog related, but out of our wheelhouse. So um, we have on with us best-selling author, Maria Goodovich. Maria, how are you? I'm doing pretty well here in chilly Northern California. How are you guys doing? <laughs> chilly. Good, good. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. This, who's, it wasn't a Hemingway that was like the coldest winter I ever had was like the summer in South San Francisco it or something. Mark Twain, I think. There you go. Yes, but... Whoever yeah, was was absolutely right. It's, it's uh, <laughs> very uh, overcast and maybe 58 degrees right now. Uh, it's like 107 yeah. with the heat index here. Oh, I <laughs> <laughs> we can it's, intertwine it's, our weather. We'll, it's I'll be miserable. Happy. So for those of you who are listening, you rec- might maybe recognize the name. Maybe you don't. Some of you knuckle draggers out there, I know you don't read. But uh, <laughs> she, uh, Maria has written some books that are very, very well known um, in the dog world, in the human world, really, I, I would go out on a limb to guess that a massive amount of the people who have bought your books and read them uh, were not working dog handlers. They're just people who love dogs and good stories. Um, her first book was Soldier Dogs, which uh, was, I mean, very, very well-known. Very uh, well-known dog. I know a lot of people have talked about it. I've seen it at a lot of people's houses on their bookshelves, seen it at a lot of different places. Um, so, Maria, I don't want to get in, I don't want to give away your whole background. So, I'm just going to have you give us a kind of quick <laughs> synopsis of your professional career and kind of what led us up to today. Oh, boy. Okay. So, um, Soldier Dogs was my first book about working dogs. I'm a, I'm a trained journalist. I've, I worked for USA Today as a Northern California correspondent for a number of years. And, and then um, when I had my human child, as opposed to my dog child, I, um, I decided to go away from that and start writing other 
other books and getting into other kinds of journalism. And I actually had a series in, in California. It was called The, the Dog Lover's <laughs> Companion to California. It became a, a 1,000-page book to all the places you can go with your dog in California. That became a national series that other people would write, and I would just sort of series edit. So my, my, I was pretty much knee-deep in dogs, and I got a, a job as, a, as the news editor of this dog website named Dogster, and I was always trying to promote stories about uh, military dogs and, and handlers. And the reason for that is because I, I knew about them. Unlike pretty much everyone else I knew, um, I knew that dogs were in the military and still were in the military because my dad used to tell us about uh, when he was a very young soldier in World War II. And he was, uh, all I know was South Pacific. He didn't give us many details, but um, he would talk about how these dogs, and, and as you guys probably all know, uh, World War II is the first time dogs were officially in, in our military. And uh, so he happened to have one or two that would work with them every so often. He'd talk about how they would save lives by day and save souls at night. He was like 18, I guess. And even though he came from a you know, pretty bad home in a pretty bad part of Philadelphia, he, he missed home. And the dog would always seem to go, he said, to him if he was having a bad day or to someone else who you know, had lost a friend. He lost, my dad lost his best friend over there. And, um, but he said the dogs always seemed to like, be able to pick up on, on who, who was really you know, having a hard time. Now, I don't know if that's just that dogs are trying to normalize the situation or what. But, so I grew up with that sort of mythology of the, the military working dog. And um, it, it was back, well, I guess, uh, yeah, 2011. And uh, your listeners know very well the story of uh, Cairo, thanks to, to, in part to his, his wonderful book and Will, Will Chesney's um, interview, wonderful interview with you guys. Um, that, the uh, Navy SEAL team's raid on the Bin Laden compound happened in spring of 2011. And I had been thinking about doing a book on military dogs anyway, because I really wanted to get the word out. They, they didn't, people in general didn't seem to know they existed, as I said. And I wanted to, to tell their stories, tell the stories of the devoted handlers and, and what dogs can do. So when that went down, I just thought, okay, it's now or never. So, um, actually what happened was a, uh, an agent contacted me, I guess, because of my dog background and editing um, on Dog's Journal. And she asked if I was interested, and yes, so we got a proposal together really quickly. And I ended up having an incredibly short amount of time to write an incredibly difficult book um, to crack into all, uh, all the branches of the military uh, and, and get to know the dog programs and get to know the stories of some of these handlers and the dogs. Uh, I don't even want to tell you how, how many months I had because uh, your listeners will go, oh, no, this couldn't be a very good book. But I pretty much worked around the clock for a few, very few months um, and getting into, getting into uh, well, I can talk about this more later, but it, it worked. It all worked out. And then uh, my <laughs> next book was about, um, was about this marine hero dog named Luca, and she uh, she led more than it's called Top Dog, and she led more than 400 combat missions um, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and no one was ever injured. And you know these these were during most dangerous times there. And the story of her and her handlers and the guys she worked with and the guys she protect is is phenomenal. And I feel so grateful that um, I was chosen to be her biographer. And um, still, and we can. 
talk more about that if you guys want. And the next book, uh, Secret Service Dogs, uh, is you can guess is about Secret Service Dogs. It wasn't a very creative title, but I didn't come up with it. And it's uh, about the dogs who protect the President of the United States. And uh, I just thought, well, great, this will come out in 2016, and um, who knows what will be happening then. And um, it was very interesting to see how all that panned out. And um, the dogs, you know, what's great is the dogs aren't political, and they protect Democrats, Republicans, and, you know, whoever, um, just as well as, as the next, you know, what it, they're, they're nonpartisan, and they do such a phenomenal job, and their handlers are so devoted. Um, and I talked about the, the badass dogs who, who work right at the White House, and, and the little sniffer dog, floppy-ear dogs in front of the White House, and all, the, all those guys, and, and their adventures. It's all about stories, right? So stories and stories and stories, uh, all interwoven. And my most recent book is called Dr. Dogs, How Our Best Friends Are Becoming Our Best Medicine. And that one came out in October last year, and that's a it's kind of weird. It's about how it's about medical detection dogs in a way, and there are many of them out there, and they're they're saving lives every day. And I got very deeply into the science of of all this, and there's a lot of science going on, good science, some not so good science, and um, and of course, you know, it, it's the book is based on the stories, and I interweave that with science throughout the book and um, that's that's the most recent book and I, I just find it absolutely fascinating and what I really like about that book is that it kind of does follow in the footsteps of, of my other ones because it's about dogs using their noses and their bonds with their people to save lives just like they do in the military just like they do in the secret service it's just a one-off this is medical mental and physical mostly physical health so that's me in a nutshell a big nutshell like a walnut awesome but, Right, yeah, like a large one. Uh, (laughs) When you said science, Cameron Ford just scooted closer to his his phone. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody just texted Cameron, and they're like, hey, go listen. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, hey, Cameron, you know. (laughs) No, I really, um, that's the thing. There there are, uh, well, I I poured through um, so many studies. I have a huge box full of these printed out studies um, that have been done mostly on cancer detection um, and, and dogs detecting cancer and the early studies that were done there were there you know it's they're not so good compared to what's going on now and every study you know you learn something new and I think Cameron is developing some protocols that that are fantastic and um, and I and, and I'm sure they will change over time but if more people uh, aren't in the room while the dog is detecting you know, cancer or whatever is in the port. That's a good thing. If they're, you know, the double blind, every, everything that um, that the best science uh, stands for is is what this is what is needed here because there have probably been a lot of um, uh, results that weren't quite accurate, and uh, there there's some really sloppy <laughs> science out there for sure. So uh, yeah, I, I won't get into the details of of protocols and all that, but it's improving all the time, and with people like Cameron being a watchdog, um, it will continue doing so. The crazy thing is, too, is if you think back, I want to go all the way back to your dad telling your stories about in World War II with the uh, with the dogs. Ted, you know, Ted and I and other trainers at this point, as far as working a dog and getting a dog trained up to work with police or military, um, <clears throat> we're not really reinventing anything or coming up with anything new it's pretty you know individual to a dog but there's you know best practices and things that work and things that don't 
But if you think back, Ted, especially to uh, World War II, those guys, they had to be fucking making it up. Excuse my language, ma'am. But they had, I mean, I'm baffled to think about how they have to be like, well, let's try this. Well, shit, that didn't work. Uh, let's, you know oh, what I mean? Yeah. I'm sure they were learning from someone, but holy crap. Yeah. They had dogs for the most part. They were well, volunteers. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you listen to Eric tell the story about how, you know, most of Canton's dogs back when he started, like they were drinking out of a hubcap. And then a week later, they were in school, right? And that was what, Eric? That was the early yeah, 90s? Donated. Yeah, donated. Yeah, I mean, right? So that's yeah. the early 90s. And, I mean, we've come a long way even since the early 90s. And mm-hmm. dog. And so I can't imagine. Somebody else says, who, who was it that we had on the podcast, too? Like, their grandfather also had a dog in World War II. And they're, uh, it may have been... I'll have to go back and look at it, and we'll we'll put it in the show notes. But one of our guests yeah, too, like their grandfather, right? The grandfather was part of the program, or helped, or donated a dog to the program, to the war effort program, or something. But it was a donated dog. They didn't have Lackland uh-huh. like they do now. <laughs> now they just yeah. have that big machine mm-hmm. down in San Antonio that just cranks out MWDs <laughs> with Hilliard yeah. and all those guys. So yeah, which they do a great job. But yeah, have you I, heard I, about the? The Marines cutting back. Uh, I'm sure you've probably had shows about this. I don't know, but um, I just did a. I have a, a Facebook page called Soldier Dogs, and um, I have like 160,000 people on it. Um, and I just did a post on the Marine cutbacks. Uh, by uh, I don't know if, if, if you guys all know about this, but it's 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 pretty devastating. Uh, it's a huge blow to the the Marine Corps thriving military working dog program. They're going to be cutting like from uh, 210 current working dogs to 150 in a couple years, and you know that's 45. That's like that's way down from you know the heyday in Iran and Afghanistan, and now um, it's going to be like they're because they're closing the mess, right? And that's going to be uh, it's a show. This is a show in and of itself, I'm sure, but um, but yeah, it just uh, it's probably like 12,000 fewer personnel, and uh, the the kennels aren't really being singled out. They're just part of um, closing down the mess, and so they're going to be something like eight mm-hmm. deployable dogs out of Lejeune and, Lejeune and um, Pendleton. So uh, it's not it's not good, and I I really uh, I just think it's going to cause a lot of collateral damage as they refocus. Um, we'll see. That's just my two cents on that. I I don't know, Ted. I hadn't heard that. Um, I I'm what? not surprised, you know, because as they start scaling back our our. Not commitment, but what we're doing overseas, they'll scale that back. It's an inevitability that they're going to cut well, everything. Was kind of, they'll, they'll regret it at some point. It was interesting. Right. I mean, it's history. Yeah, because right. well, we interviewed Dowling, right? So when Dowling was, you know, because Dowling was a Marine, and when he, or is a Marine, and when he was handling um, over in Iraq the first time, and he talks about meeting um, the, the, well, at the time that we did the interview, he was the sitting sec, uh, Secretary of Defense. But, you know, he was one of the first military teams in the Middle East that was a Marine. And he was like, the, he was showing up and like the base Are you talking about Tim like, Yeah. It, well, yeah. yeah. Yes. It, and, you know, he shows up and the base commander, he didn't, I can't remember, he, I don't think he said his name, but he said, um, they were like, what are you doing here? And he was like, I'm a canine handler. And they're like, what? And he was like, I didn't even really had any dogs. And they, he said, you know, well, why are you here? He's like, oh, I can find bombs. And he was like, you mean to tell me that dog can find explosives? And they said, yeah. And he's like, shit. And they sent him out that night. And I mean, the story is crazy. I mean, they went from, he went from, they went from not even knowing to like, have, they're like, where's the dog? And I mean, it was a crazy story. And it was kind of like the, 
the beginning of that whole process during the whole GWAT thing. And, and so I, he had mentioned that it was going to be spinning down during the, it was episode 91 for everybody listening. Um, but he didn't mention it on on Mike, but he mentioned it to us during either before or after. But yeah, and I was like, yeah, oh, it so just we'll came see. out um, more publicly recently, and um, it's just uh, like they, the last of the tanks in the Marines were reportedly decommissioned last week. So um, it's it's a big change in the Marines overall, and the dogs are the dogs and the handlers are are definitely taking a hit. It's kind of like you know with the dogs being part of the mess, they're they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. The dogs with the bathwater, and, and yeah. history has repeated itself almost every time. And, and then there's a big skirmish to, you know, let's get quick, we need dogs. And getting that infrastructure back up is pretty tough. Um, so, so once that's gone, they almost have to start from scratch. And procuring the dogs, of course, is getting harder. Um, and everything is right now. So it's, I, I hate to see that with Marines. I, uh, my, probably my favorite book is uh, Top Dog about Luca. And as you talked about uh, with Dowling, uh, this dog came in with uh, Chris Willingham. I don't know if you know him. He's a legendary Marine ham. He's, he stayed oh, yeah. in uh, in canine almost the whole his whole career, yeah. uh, and just retired a couple years ago. But um, same with Luca. When she would she went in, she often worked with the army actually, and uh, sometimes special forces. But she people would be like, "What a dog? What do you? Okay, so what do you do?" And so he had to explain to everyone, you know, what what she, what she can do, and that they're proven, not perfect, and um, and everyone utilized her after that. I mean, like then she became kind of a legend herself around uh, wherever she wherever she would go they they wanted her and you know places were kind of like jostling for her to be on their team and all that but you know the lives they save you, you never know how many but but there are sure a lot 400 missions right about 400, yep, 400 plus missions. with her yep about 400 missions and um and i start that mm. book with a, a seed that um i'm not giving anything away in other words um on what would be her last mission it wasn't to be her last mission but she was a uh, walking point and sniffing for um, ieds in a um in afghanistan and she uh it was a sort of like in a farm field area, and her then handler uh, Juan Rodriguez was, uh, you know, he, she said he she found one small IED. They noted that, went around, and um, she just did a, a turn, and all he heard was this: there was an explosion and this tremendous high pitched scream, and then silence. And uh, Luca went down. Um, she he rushed her to a tree line and uh, in his arms and the medic went with him and he uh was the only option there was she, her her paw was uh really bad shape and was kind of like not there so much and he he did a tourniquet and uh uh, uh helicopter came in uh, like within 10 minutes and swept them off uh to a human hospital and uh in in um Kabul I think it was and Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't remember exactly where that one was because they, they went to a couple, and uh, they they <clears throat> saved her life there. They actually ended up uh, uh, taking her leg, and uh, she was trying to walk within three days, and she uh, she has that hmm. indomitable spirit, and she 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 would have kept working. She ended up uh, getting adopted by Chris Fillingham, her first handler, and uh, the one who he actually met her in Israel. They were training to be specialized search dog handlers, and the the military hadn't had those before, so he was one of the first people to have one of these off-leash uh, de- bomb detection dogs. And so they met you know, way back, and they had such a history, and he was able to adopt her. And he and Juan Rodriguez were co-parents, actually, because uh, Juan was also her handler, and so Juan would often uh, visit 
during her retirement, he'd stay with the Willinghams, and she was. He would always get to have her uh, like as his baby when when he would be visiting and take her on walks, and she'd usually you know curl up at the foot of his bed on the on the bed there to uh, to hang out with him while he visited. So it's a really it's a it's a, a story with a, a happy ending, even though it could have been quite tragic. And uh, I just I love the Lucas story because she she inspires a lot of people who are having their own difficulties, and, uh, and there she used to go to. Um, Walter Reed um, to the um, to where where guys with amputations were getting rehabbed and show them hey this is what you can still do I mean granted she had four legs and was just missing one but uh, she I, I wrote a lot about like how she has inspired people as well so anyway that's uh, there's so many different topics I can talk about at length so stop me if you need to and, and <laughs> refocus that's right no, real quick ahead. the picture you have of her with the three legs sitting with the medal is like like famous. You know, um, everybody knows exactly who you're talking about when you say that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would, say, Luca and she, I would say Luca and Leica would be the two that everybody knows. And they both lost their leg, and they're both female dog, yep. and they're both, both female NPCs. So, and they both get confused <laughs> all the time. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and their well, names are so mm-hmm. similar. Yes. Um, but, yeah, they're both, they're both incredible heroes. And, um, yeah, again, it's just a real honor to, to have written about, about Luca. And I, I kind of, um, I'm sort of related now to the Willingham family because um, one of the people – we're related, we're related by dog, I will say that. One of the people I read about in Top Dog um, was a, a young soldier, a dog handler named Corey Weens, and he had a, a dog named Cooper, a yellow lab, who was trained as a bomb sniffer, and Chris Willingham was kind of uh, in charge of him and other handlers when they would come through, and uh, and Corey Weens on his second-to-last day, or one of his very last missions, um, he lost his life to an IED. He and his dog uh, just immediately they, they, there was not much left of them. And uh, there, I, I had to interview their father, his father um, Kevin Weens. It was really hard, uh, but he, he fortunately he, he really wanted to tell Corey's story and to get to have people know his son and for his son to live on through a book like this. So I was really able to um, tell Corey's story and, and and Cooper. And Cooper was like his son. He would always call him my son. And so that means Cooper is Kevin's grandson. And um, to help Kevin get through this time, he started taking in uh, labs. This was a yellow lab, so yellow labs primarily. And he, he had a double wide up in Oregon. And he I think at one point he had about five lab, yellow labs. And uh, one of them, it just helped him, you know, it just helped him feel closer to Corey, and and yes, he was grieving profoundly, but it would just it just helped him get by, get through, and uh, he gave them a great home. One of them was not spayed, and uh, he he decided to yeah. have a litter of of puppies with this really good dog, um, and uh, they the he asked me. And it was that was also an honor if I would uh, be interested in having a Corey Weens and Cooper Memorial puppy. Of course, I said yes. My old lab uh, had had died about a year before, and I was almost ready. And um, so, so he gave me one, and uh, Chris Willingham got his brother. So I have Gus here, and Chris and his family have Murray, Furry Murray, back east now. And uh, they they actually they were reunited about a year after they parted, and they immediately recognized each other and were romping around like best friends. It was it was really sweet. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, those are those are the kinds of stories I, I you know really they're they're hard to they're hard to research and they're gut wrenching. 
to, to talk to the parents of these people who uh, who died. Um, but it's I, f- I feel like it's a way to help keep at least their memories alive and, and what they have done and, and the lives they've saved and, and kind of um, commemorate that and honor them in these books. With these books, like the research process is fairly intensive, and you said you wrote the first one pretty quickly. Uh, <laughs> so... Mm-hmm. In the process, um, what has been more difficult, dealing with the military or dealing with the Secret Service? <laughs> okay, um, I would say that's a tie <laughs> because <laughs> for my first book, I had to I had to get as I said I had to get permission first of all to even well not to do the book because you know you can you can do a book but try, I had to get to Lackland to write a book right about military dogs It's not really a good book unless you can get into Lackland I think and right. so. Um, I contacted the PA there, and he uh, he told me when I finally reached him, uh, he told me that I'm about the fifth person in line who wants to write a book about these dogs, and that he cannot accommodate everybody. So what he's having he's having people do is go to their local kennels if there's one near them, and he said you should be able to get everything you need from that local kennel, and if, you know, and if you need more, well, okay, contact me. So I did my due diligence. I went up to Travis Air Force space here and you know i got i got some good stuff but it's not it's not lackland right it's a small kennel and so uh, i i did what he needed and i called him back and he said okay i did it and so i felt at that point this was maybe three weeks later or so when the clock was really ticking and um and i felt like um you know in the wizard of oz where dorothy has to go get the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West in order to get a reward or whatever. That was my broomstick. That was like, okay, I did Travis. Well, the door opened for me, and it turns out I was the only author that he was letting in because I was the only one at that time who was who was doing what she needed to do or he or she needed to do. So, um, so that was great, and that got me into Lackland. But then, you know, there were the other branches of the military to contend with, uh, and getting into the Marines, that was tough, but... Uh, this uh, gunnery sergeant, Chris Knight, uh, who I write about extensively in Soldier Dogs, and he also appears in Top Dog. He's one of those guys, Marines, who's like, you know what? There's the black, there's the white, I live in the gray. And he let me, he's like, come on, I didn't get any official okay from the Marines to do this. Um, I just showed up at, um, at Yuma Proving Ground where they have the uh, their pre-deployment training, and, and Chris was in charge of that. And so I got to hang out there for a while, and, and I got that part of the story. And things kind of um, opened up like, like that throughout, and then the Navy um, and uh, Army. So it all, it all worked out, but it was really, really gut-wrenchingly hard to, to make it all happen. And, and sometimes you just have to, you know, go in the gray, and that gray zone. And it all, it all worked out. Now, with the Secret Service, um, that took me about nine solid months waiting day by day of them telling me we, we should know in a couple of days or we should know next week. Um, so hmm. I could have actually had a baby in that time, but um, I, <laughs> nine months was really long because, you know, the election was, you know, was going to be coming up and I knew the timing for this book. I wanted more time than I had for soldier dogs, certainly. Um, and they did, they did finally um, say yes. And there were definitely, I had my own handler most of the time when I, that, that, that to let me in was a really big deal for them because they don't they don't do that they just don't do that but it was because they they liked my other books and they know I'm the real deal and I've I've been told a lot of things throughout the years um, and I would I would sooner you know go to jail than you know tell anyone tell anyone uh, the secrets people have told me and um, in these books and and it was the same with those guys uh, 
I think they they got to know me and trust me, and I I got some really good stories that I I could publish, and some I couldn't. But my own handler, he was a an agent, not a uniform guy, um, and he he was with me a lot for for the interviews. And then once they got to know me better, I could go with the handlers to to their homes or whatever. Those dogs go home with their handlers, unlike the military dogs, by the way. So, and those dogs were those dogs were pretty fun to deal with because you had your you know totally badass Malinois who could you know take care of anyone trying to get into the White House, and then you have your little scraggly uh, mongrels who you know work in front of the White House who who think they're just as badass. And I dealt with that with sol- with the soldier dogs with um, the military dogs too. You know, you had I wrote about this dog named Lars who was a Jack Russell Terrier, and I met him oh, on yeah. a nuclear submarine. Yep. <laughs> He he's just, a he he's a navy passed. dog. Yeah, and he's a, he's a navy yeah. dog. Yep. Yeah, he just he just passed away, but man, he just he was all that and more, and he knew it. And uh, he liked to eat boots when you're standing there and uh, all, all kinds of goodies. But he was really good at his job. Yes, he would have to be lifted from berth to berth in the submarines, and I'm sure that was somewhat humiliating. But he he did it really well, and he handled it with uh, with his usual, you know, hey, I'm the best And I can't imagine having, and I understand why, because he was a narcotics dog, if I remember right. No, he was a bomb dog. Oh, he was? Okay. Yeah, but there was pictures of him being lowered through um, the hatch um, to (laughs) confined spaces, right? And like last week, we just did a training scenario um, where I was, I call it the Ninja Turtle scenario, but we're doing bites down in a sewer or in a runoff tunnel, but we're lowering dogs through a... um, basically like a drainage grate here mm-hmm. and um these are you know 80 to 100 pound pissed off malinois and german shepherds oh, wow. and i'm you said lars and i was like oh man that's a perfect example of why not everybody needs a big ass dog i can't imagine having a german shepherd on a fucking submarine that was well, exactly that's why they had <laughs> that lars that's why these guys seriously they had back problems because that's what they were trying to do that and terrible Hey, the noses are the same, and they don't need Lars to protect anyone. He's obviously single-purpose dog, and so he—that's they—they need. I think they need more more Larses in the world because they, you know, that it will save facts. And you know, maybe I don't. You guys probably have dual purpose who are doing those really cool jobs, but uh, the Navy just needed the single purpose. And yeah, uh, he was a. He was a bomb dog. Uh, don't mess around. I had a working Jack Russell Terrier when I was in college. And you did? She, oh, she, I taught, she bit my fraternity brother. She, we used to take her downtown and let her kill rats. And enough wow. that she would do everything a full on patrol dog would in 14 pounds of anger. And right. she would, and <laughs> I, we have a buddy, one of our, uh, one of the podcasts, buddy, he works for Marion, Marion County Sheriff's office. Um, his name's George Wallace. He's a good friend of ours, but he has a Malinois and he also has a, um, Jayhead carrier, which is kind of like a Jack Russell with a different paint job, but he's a shithead too. K bar. He, yeah, they're, they're gnarly little dogs, especially when you get the working with one of my interns has one too. And it, they use them for, um, like hunting. Um, and they're, I, yeah, they're, I, I can 110% see why when I first saw heard about that dog, I thought that's a genius idea. Cause there was pictures of him there and like at the UN or something. Right. And I, I'm trying to remember where I've seen. No, I went. I was in the submarine with them, so um, my my photographer was getting those, which are now apparently iconic. And um, he, <laughs> those were the ones that he he won some awards, and he he lived a very good retired life, by the way, for for many years. He retired pretty early because you know 
they live forever, right? These dogs live way longer than, oh, yeah. than the bigger dogs. Um, but yeah, I think I would love to see more of those small dogs used. One of my favorite dogs, as I mentioned, was this is this scrappy little terrier mix who works in front of the White House, to, and he's a vapor trail dog, and and he does his job super well. And it says, you know, they all wear that little signage that says "Do not pet," because well, back before COVID, everyone's in front of the White House and everyone wants to pet these dogs. And so, but hit for him, just our little secret. Well, it's actually in the book. He he was a dog who did glee pee and still does. So if you if you pet him, he likes to pee. So um, there's probably a, another mm. reason they didn't want people to pet him. <laughs> but uh, he's outside all the time, so, and people weren't supposed to pet him. And I got to hang out with uh, him and his family uh, in their house, and he's every bit the, the swaggering, fun, dynamic dog that he is when he's on the job. And he's, he's going to keep going for a long time, and there was a... Um, there are a couple of other really cool floppier dogs that weren't, you know, weren't Labrador retrievers. So I really like seeing that mix, and it would be nice to see more. Oftentimes, people ask me for for my book, Doctor Dogs. They're like, oh, you know, it's just uh, too bad. You know, I, I know these small dogs are really, you know, really smart, and but they could never be de- scent detection dogs. And I'm like, well, actually, you'd be surprised. And people often are surprised. Not your listeners, obviously, but people who read my books, um, they, they they tend to not know. Uh, the power of a dog's nose. So, you know, whether a big dog or a small dog, they they like to they like to know that. Yeah, maybe your little dog could could sniff out something one day. You never know. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, we ha- we have a guy uh, Hagner that works with us who's a glee peer. So <laughs> true story. Yeah, we can no, relate. That, that yeah. is true. We you don't touch him because it'll be yeah. so. Yeah. <laughs> How do you stop uh, that? I mean, fortunately, I have not had one in my personal life, but I think they've tried everything. It's a secret service. They they can try a lot of things. But. <laughs> uh, no, we don't have those resources. <laughs> yeah. right. So that's an interesting question, too. Like what I mean, because that's kind of the deal, right? So if you're with the special operations guys, they have a not necessarily unlimited budget, but a lot. You know, most of the Marines and the MPC guys. Uh, or not the MPC, the MWD guys are not quite as resource rich. And then, so what, in terms of like the resources available to the Secret Service versus the military, what did that look like? Mm, you know, um, I, I don't think anyone has enough resources, honestly. Um, wow. Secret right. Service, um, they they go to, you know, Kenny's Kennels. I went with them. I, I did that. Uh, well, I didn't do the drive, actually. I, I met them um, in Indiana at uh What's it called? Licklider's Kennels. I, yeah, okay. Um, yep. and, yeah, him. <laughs> and, and so I went with them, and, and you know, they've, they've got a budget they've got to deal with. And uh, the Marines obviously have a budget, but at least they, they can at least source their dogs in the U.S., whereas the military, you know, has to go on those buy trips, and, and they have to – they all have to face other countries that have kind of – unlimited budgets per canine, right? So um, everyone's looking for the best dog for the budget. I, I, I don't know enough. Uh, that's one thing that the that no one ever officially told me was how much they can spend per dog. I got, you know, I got ideas of it, obviously, you know, off the record. But um, let's just say no one, it's getting, it. Uh, it's obviously it's getting more competitive to get the best dogs. And um, I just don't think... Uh, most people in these situations have the budget to contend with other forces in the world that can pay a lot more for the dogs. But uh, mm-hmm. I'd say the Secret Service is, um, they just got a beautiful new kennel. I saw that um, last year when I was there uh, doing publicity yeah. for my book. Um, God, it's, it's 
really state of the art and doesn't smell like a kennel at all. So they did a nice job. So they they do have hmm. they do have a bit of a budget that you know comparing that with Lackland for instance, yeah. Um, but you know yeah. Lackland has so many more dogs. The military has so many more dogs that they they use, and I, I'm not allowed to say how many dogs are in the Secret Service. That's one thing I wrote that I wouldn't do. But um, they're you know they're obviously hmm. not that many. But they're they they're really good at what they do, and those are all single-purpose dogs. Uh, they believe that the dogs need to have um, a focus, and they need to be extremely good at what they do in order to protect the most important office in the world. And uh, the dogs are the dogs are really good at it. Um, that's uh, that's something that I find interesting. That, that they started out. Now you talk about uh, you were talking about the history of uh, world dogs in World War II and how that all began, but. Um, when the Secret Service rolled out its program in the 70s, it was a mess. It was they were getting dogs from wherever, and the dogs were the the the, the handlers. You know, they'd been handlers before, but uh, the dogs they they just were getting these the the ones who were reactionary and kind of crazy. And they had to they had some good dogs among them, but they really had to get their act together quickly, and, and they did. But um, I was fortunate enough to get to meet um, Clint Hill. You guys know who he is. He's the um, he's the famous Secret Service agent who uh, jumped onto the back of Kennedy's car when right. he was assassinated. And right. he, that's that photo of him on the back protecting Jackie. Um, I, I met him here actually, um, and uh, in in the Bay Area, I, I was actually on a boat at the same time he was, and I had been thinking about doing this book, and he happened to be there. I was astounded, and he was so incredibly nice. He is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet and he and his partner were there and um he said hey look if if you ever if you get this if you if you want anything i can i can hook you in with people who can really get into the history he actually was behind starting the program so he did he uh he connected me with um bill livinggood who uh who was a great resource and then you know once you're in there then that spreads because you can't really do a book on on Secret Service dogs without getting into well, how did this start and when and why, and so I was uh, I was really fortunate that uh, that he Clint Hill uh, was was there at, at the right time, and he's written some amazing books of his own um, that I highly recommend. Anything anything by Clint Hill, I think, would be really of interest to your listeners. Definitely get some people on those books. Um, so we are going to go ahead and take a break, and we come back. We're going to talk about the fourth book, the Doctor Dogs, and. Um, it's really something that uh, is Ted and I just really don't know anything about. And uh, we'd like to delve into that. So uh, stick around, folks. Listen to the commercials. Get the discount codes. If you fast forward through it, they will be in the show notes at the bottom. We'll be right back. And Ray Allen Canine Manufacturing. It's no secret that we love Ray Allen Canine Equipment. We use their products every single day. Their mission statement says it all. To be a world leader in quality and innovation of professional canine equipment for police military schutzen and ring sport to exceed our customers expectations and delivery on time every time at a fair price we full-heartedly believe they've held true to that since it is our go-to one-stop shop for everything dog one of the longtime sponsors of working dog radio from the beginning has been highland canine in north carolina tactical police canine a.k.a. Highland Canine in North Carolina, offers training, seminars, and consulting globally for police, military, and non-government agencies. They provide customized training programs to address specific problems and meet the needs of your organization. Check out their wide array of handler courses, instructor courses, supervisor courses, and online courses at tacticalpolicecanine.com. Uh, Jason and Aaron Ferguson are two of our 
most favorite people, and they have been with us since the beginning. So hit them up. We get it. Fueling a working dog can be tough, but they need that high-quality food to give them the energy and nutrients that they require for the work we ask them to do. Kinetic Dog Food has a great balance of healthy meats and grains and is made specifically for working and sporting dogs. They have a full line of foods and supplements available, and they've been working to perfect their line with thousands of dogs in hundreds of departments across the U.S., and you can buy it locally, online, or at Tractor Supply. Another one of our favorite partnerships is with the one and only Dogtra. These guys are producing some amazing tools in the dog training world. Everything from e-collars, GPS tracking, ball training, bark collars. If it's electronic, Dogtra is the best. They are truly revolutionizing the way you communicate with your dog. Plus, they give us a great discount code. Go to Dogtra.com. Everybody hears me say all the time, you can't teach dogs to bite people and act shocked when they do. Inevitably, I get bit. You've all heard me talk about how I get tagged and being tagged by a dog sucks. So I've used quick term uh, to help myself. Uh, but before I had to go to the doctor's office, uh, it, it definitely helped keep down infection and everything else. And I've had some uh, non-scarring because of it too. So it's pretty good, but it's no exaggeration. This stuff is great. Once daily treatment for any skin condition on small wounds to help stop little issues from becoming big ones that your admins are sure to love. It comes in a spray, it comes in an ointment, it comes in a dressing. Quickterm is great at creating protective barrier and promoting wound healing. There's no reason not to have a bottle of this in the patrol car, or your kennel, or your first aid cabinet. Plus, it's, it's uh, temperature stable. So you can keep it in the patrol car when it's cold, when it's hot, whenever, and it'll still be good. Make sure you hit them up at vetcare.us and use the discount code 10WDR for a discount on your first purchase which is going to be 10 percent have you ever dreamed of having your own kennel but don't know where to start horizon structures has taken all of the guesswork out of building a kennel everything is pre-built to your specifications and preferences and then assembled and dropped off at your land boom new kennels and these things are amazing you've got to see them to truly believe them their website horizonstructures.com is a one-stop shop. Build your best kennel, your favorite things you want. Check it out, horizonstructures.com. All right, everybody, we are back. Working Dog Radio broadcasting the bite. Again, hope you listen to the commercials. We have great sponsors. We love them. Um, we couldn't do this without them. Some of them have been, like ALM has been with us since the uh, kickoff of this thing. And the boys down at uh, Tripwire, um, we have a great relationship with everybody. So... Do us a favor, support those folks. No sex offenders in any of our uh, true story sponsorships. Um, true, yeah, we don't like that. So um, we're back with Maria Goodovage, um, author, um, small dog connoisseur. Apparently, uh, we um, <laughs> no, we're gonna get it. No. We're gonna get it. No, that's all right. We're gonna get into her fourth book um, because again, we talked about it. Ted and I don't. Uh, know anything about this he probably gets asked a lot i as i do um like how do the dogs smell cancer how do they do how can they and i'm like i don't know but it's fascinating that's why there's people who do that and um talk about dog barking you can hear mine um so right yeah she is so um anyways maria 
let's get into like how, how did this all come about? Did somebody approach you, or it was just something you were intrigued by, or how did how this whole subject matter happen? So I, I was really I'm a science nerd, and I was really interested in what dogs are doing along the lines of science in the same kind of vein that they're doing uh, for the military and secret service and police forces, but using their noses to save lives. And this was just a, a different way of doing this. And I, I would hear occasionally about a, a dog here whose person said, oh, my dog told me I had cancer, or um, a study that would come out of Japan, for instance, about dogs sniffing out stomach cancer. And um, this all fascinated me. And I had been collecting articles um, in my Evernote program and I decided to try to see if I could make a book out of this. And there was so much, there's so, so, so much going on right now that hasn't been gathered by anybody. And so I took it upon myself. And it was a, Dr. Dogs was uh, probably by far the most research I've had to do. Yes, it was hard to get into the Secret Service and the military for my last books. But this, um, while the doors were wide open for me, uh, there was, there's so much and so many places that I wanted to go. And um, there was so much science to contend with. I said I had this huge box full of, of research that um, that's just part of, part of what I've, I've uh, been looking at for what I had to look at for the studies and make sense of them and then write about the science in a way that's really easy to understand, in a way that I would like to read about it. So that's what I, I like to do with my books is to make more difficult things easy to understand. And I would say um, the book is just filled with is stories that people really um, enjoy. There are some, there are, there are stories of life and death and just like, you know, um, working in the military, wherever, these dogs are, are saving lives. And um, I kind of divide it in my mind anyway into dogs who work beside their people on a daily basis to, uh, to help them deal with uh, physical or mental health issues, and then the dogs who are working behind the scenes in research. And um, the research that I'm talking about, don't picture like beagles in cages in some cold scientific study. This is, these are mostly dogs who come in for the day, they're trained on certain things, and, and they go home, or they're, um, they, they, they live a good life, whatever they're doing. And there's some really good institutions around the world that are doing this. And there are some people who are also trying to make a quick buck on it. And you have to know, you know, where to separate that out. And the, the, the cancer research that I wrote about is, uh, is being done in really good places. And we're, we're not, you know, talking about um, smaller, smaller, you know, smaller facilities that are, you know, with really questionable science. I know Cameron Ford is listening. So um, I will say that there are, you know, there are definitely people trying to make a quick buck at almost everything in this world, uh, including dogs. There are, I write about diabetic alert dogs, diabetes alert dogs who, who alert to low blood sugar. Um, and there are some really great trainers out there in training facilities. And then there are some that really try, you know, they really try and they kind of get it, but maybe not quite. And then there are some that are just trying to make a buck. And so I'm always urging people to, to really do their homework. But um, in all of these cases, what I find so interesting, um, whether a dog is sniffing for um, uh, lower high blood sugar or seizures, yes, dogs can scent out seizures, they've shown, and I've seen it time and time again, um, or in the laboratory detecting cancer or Parkinson's or um, C. diff in hospitals. Um, the dogs are... the most, except for C. diff, I would say most of the time um, we don't really know exactly what they're sniffing, especially for cancer, diabetes, seizures. We don't know what it is. We have no idea. But the dogs are telling us, yeah, 
this is cancer at the Penn Vet Working Dog Center. Cindy Otto and her team are... I was just going to mention that. Yeah, so um, they're working on ovarian cancer, as you know. And that is unfortunately something that runs, seems to run in my family. My mom died of it. So I've got skin in this game in a big way. And I was really happy when Mm -hmm. um, Cindy opened her doors to me. And I got to see them um, when I was there. They had dogs detecting... Um, sniffing out the cancer, they they were using um, plasma from women who had ovarian cancer and plasma from women who didn't, and then other things in the other ports in the scent wheel. And um, time and time again, they were they could sniff out the plasma. Now we're not talking a whole vial of plasma; we're talking a single drop of plasma. Actually, when I was wow. there, it was a drop of plasma diluted with saline and one drop taken from that, and the dog would alert to it. They were trying to get the um, the sample down really far because, to, to see how low the dog could go because the idea behind all these dogs working to find cancer in these laboratory settings and these institutions around the world isn't that dogs will be used at your local doctor's office or where I, we have Kaiser out here at Kaiser uh, facilities or other medical settings. They, the dogs are going to be, um, eventually the hope is the dogs will lead to technology uh, the, the dogs will tell scientists, okay, these are the scents of, this is the scent of cancer. This is the, this is the fingerprint. These are the VOCs and the combination of those volatile organic compounds that make up cancer in general or this particular type of cancer. Researchers don't even know if dogs are smelling an overall fingerprint to all cancer or if it's individualized to, um, to different cancers. So that's, you know, kind of how early we are in, in that research, how, how early they are in the research. But, um, but the fact is that dogs can, they piece it together. There's that aha moment, right? Just like what your guys, what your dogs do when you're training them. Um, they, they just go, okay, wait, you've given me all these samples and aha, now I can smell this. Now the dogs that, um, Cindy Otto's dogs are so, 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 so good at this. And they, they're working with, um, with, specialists who use um, GCMS, gas chromatography, magnetic spectrometry, it's always a mouthful, um, to try to analyze what it is the dogs are smelling. And so it goes back and forth. They, they will give the, they'll say, oh, is it, is it this compound? Are these the compounds? And they'll, they'll feed that back to the dogs, and the dogs will probably say, mm, they're not going to alert to it. And eventually the hope is that they will find what, what these volatile organic compounds are that the dogs are sniffing, and that this will lead to um, simple, easy to use, um, accurate, inexpensive, rapid, early detection for cancers like, especially like ovarian cancer that are usually detected way too late. So I'm really gunning for these dogs for personal reasons um, at, uh, at Pennsylvania and for all the dogs for, for everything that they're doing. And um, it does seem like, I mean, so far, um, let's see if I can recall everything, ovarian cancer that they've detected, breast cancer, lung, bladder, stomach, liver, prostate, skin, thyroid, um, probably more by now. Um, and, you know, the dogs, the dogs love doing this, and they detect them. Not, you know, we're not talking in tumors. Can you smell this chunk of tumor versus these paper clips? You know, this is, um, they're smelling it in blood, exhaled breath, saliva, sweat, uh, and, of course, urine and poop, which are two dogs' dogs' favorite things to smell. And, and oh, yeah. regardless, as long as they're well-trained, they too. can... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah, and they love it. They, they, they're really, they're, they're good at it. 
now, as we were talking earlier, um, there's definitely sloppy science out there. There are people like, watching the dogs, not not at the institutions I write about, but you know, there are people who um, who are in the room while their dog is um, detecting these, and you know, right by the samples sometimes. Or um, there there are a lot of problems. There are a lot of issues that even things that they're learning throughout time, like. If the if you handle this, you know, the person who handles the negatives, the person who handles the positives, the dog learns to alert to that. Sometimes the dogs are really smart and they'll cheat, right? They'll just be like, yeah, okay, this is this is easy, yeah, this this is positive, this is negative because you've handled that. Or they get to recognize the person from whom the um, the sample came, because these samples are in such, um, you know, they're they're so hard to get. Even for ovarian cancer, even though so many women have it, it's hard to procure the samples. So um, they, ha- they don't like to reuse samples because they found that dogs will recognize the person instead of the cancer. And it's really tricky. And this is the kind of stuff that um, I'm sure Cameron and others are trying to work on to, to not let that happen, not get these false results um, that I'm sure have happened in the past. And, you know, people who, people who have done these studies go, ah, you know, we blew it, you know, sometimes. So this is not what we should have done. Or the, the best scientists are constantly, you know, examining their work and realizing, oh, this was not good. We, we didn't get this right, and let's go back and do that again because they have to be, they have to, they have to be right on this. And, you know, besides cancer, dogs have um, been able to detect malaria on the socks of children from the Gambia. Um, so, like, they would take a – at first the dogs, say they took – they had children wear socks uh, and in these two schools in the Gambia, in Africa, and they gathered the socks and they shipped them to England to this uh, really good facility called Medical Detection Dogs. I think. Uh, well, anyway, um, they're they're really they're known around the world. A lot of uh, universities work with them. They provide really good dogs and really uh, work with them well. And so the dogs at first did just what I talked about before. They weren't alerting to the positives and the negatives so much as alerting to this school or that school. That's how the dogs were separating them out. Oh, I detect school A. Oh, and I detect school B. And so they had to figure out a way to get around that. And that's hard, but they, they did. And the dogs were um, quite adept at um, alerting to the children who had malaria. And they're hoping that they'll develop this to a point where they can have dogs at checkpoints. So the dogs will be um, there and at the I don't know, airports or train stations or wherever people are coming in and out of countries that have malaria and the ones that don't have it or have it, you know, on the decline want to keep that out. So that's the hope for the future of, of that. So, and, and same with um, C. diff. I don't know if you've heard about the dogs who detect Clostridium difficile, which is this horrible, wretched bacteria that um, makes people really ill and it, it can kill people if they're vul- vulnerable populations are usually in hospitals and um, senior centers, uh, you know, uh, nursing homes, and um, it can make you extremely sick. And this, there are hospitals now in Vancouver, British Columbia, that are using dogs. Uh, it started with one dog named Angus, and he proved to be very good at discovering C. diff um, in the hospital settings. And so he was able to alert to it, and they would have the robo robo cleaner, UV cleaner, and everyone else come in and clean that setting, and that helped contribute to a huge decrease in um, in C. diff infections in the hospital. Now, part of that, of course, may be just that people knew that when Angus, who's a Springer Spaniel, would walk through, they were going to be held accountable if Angus found a glove on the ground behind uh, you know, a 
a tray of towels or something that had C. diff on it. So they upped their game, too. So because Angus was there and these other dogs are there now, I think the staff are really vigilant because they know that there is someone who can check on this. So whatever the case, C. diff infections decrease. And there are all kinds of other jobs, but uh, maybe you want to ask a question so I can um, address Mm -hmm. that. I was it was curious I was curious as to I'm glad you got into uh, the cancer dogs because I was always curious as to like how, how would a cancer dog be deployed you know what do you do walk through the mall and a dog goes <laughs> up and sniff someone and go oh you might want to go see your oncologist um, but it sounds like it's it's the goal is for those types of dogs is to be st- strictly clinical yeah and not even that the dogs are there are people who have talked about doing just what you said, but that would not be cool uh, at all. And there's actually a woman um, in Chico whose dog, who has um, trained some dogs or her dog on um, cancer to do cancer detection, and she said that her um, her dog will moonlight sometimes. Uh, she doesn't want this, but her dog will go into a mall or uh, will sometimes and just sit and give her paw at people, um, and it turns out when she talks to them, if she talks to them, that they'll, um, yeah, I'm like they're being treated for cancer or they just learn they have cancer, but it's kind of a fine line, right, because this woman's dog is just alerted to someone, and she doesn't know for sure if that's what she's alert, the dog is alerting to, but um, she said a lot of the time it turns out that the person does have something, and she's in an ethical dilemma as to whether or not to tell someone. But no, that is not, that's not how these dogs will be deployed. And, but there are cases, um, you probably hear about them uh, on the radio or TV every so often or reading articles about people who swear their dogs have uh, saved their lives by discovering their own cancer. And um, I think if, if we listen to our dogs, that is definitely a possibility. Dogs can be pretty insistent when they smell something amiss. The fact that the very first case of um, cancer detection in a pet dog uh, was written up in 1989 in the prestigious British medical journal, The Lancet. It was this little dog. And now there were, there, there was two paragraphs. It was a, actually a letter to the editor from a doctor at the time who, who noted that he had found um, in the medical literature in the hospital where he was starting to work, he had to go through all, of the, he was dermatologist, all the old cases. And there was one that jumped up at him that, about this dog who had uh, alerted his person to her cancer. She had, uh, the, this dog, okay, so basically that was all that was in that article. It was two paragraphs, and it said, could these dogs actually be used to help detect cancer? So that's the first time it was in the literature. Now, I decided... Who was that dog? I, I want to find out more about this dog. This is 1989. Obviously, the dog isn't around. I didn't know if the person was around. Um, I was able to get in touch with the doctor who wrote that, and he's just fabulous. He's gone to have an, an amazing career. And he says that of all the things that he's dealt with in the past, and he's, he's had well, lots of awards and recognition, and he's a professor and the head of this and that in, in England, um, this was his favorite. This idea that dogs could detect cancer was his favorite. And so I pursued it further. I, I decided, well, you know, let me find out about this dog. What's her name? What did she do? And I was, I was able, through social media, I reached out. I, I found out the woman's name, and I reached out to her, and she never got back to me. And I thought, oh, I wonder if, you know, the cancer got the best of her. But then I found her 
what turned out to be her daughter, and her daughter said she, you know, the mom would love to talk to me. So I got the whole story of this dog. Her name was Baby Boo, and Baby Boo was this very nurturing little. I think she was like a dachshund, something or other mix that was a rescue. All their, all the family dogs were little rescues um, on the outskirts of London. And this dog would take care of the other dogs. And one of the dogs in the household was a, a little thief. She would go to the neighbor, the village um, grocery store and come back with cans of food sometimes. But, but Baby Boo would always treat her very mm. gently, as sweet as could be. But one day, the woman, um, Bonita, was working in her backyard, and, um, and she felt this, she, well, actually, she felt this horrible pain in her the back of her leg, and it turns out her dog was attacking the back of her leg, um, and and fiercely attacking this sweet little baby boo is attacking the back of her leg. As you might guess, uh, long story short, that did turn out to be the melanoma. Um, but she did she wouldn't have gotten it checked out. She wouldn't have even known that this this bump was there um, if it weren't for baby boo. So it's a it was a, it was the opening of my chapter on cancer dogs, and it, I I write about it. In, in a much better way than I tell it, but Baby Boo is kind of a hero in many ways because, well, she saved her person's life, for sure, um, but she also led the way for people to think, wow, maybe dogs can do this. And it was 10 years after that first letter appeared in The Lancet um, that the next one appeared in The Lancet, and there, wasn't, there was a little research done in the meantime. There were, it definitely inspired, the earlier letter inspired some research in Florida, for instance, um, but um, nothing got taken super seriously until the second letter, which was um, by one of the same doctors who wrote the first one, and then um, it started to take off maybe in the early 2000s. The, the cancer research started to take off in England, uh, where all this started, and then it started spreading around the around the world. And if if uh, if her little dog could be responsible for um, anyone whose life is being saved through the nose of a dog, she would be Bonita would be so thrilled. But she is actually um, over the moon that her dog may have been the start of all of this. So yeah, if and they're in the media, you do hear about people like uh, actually the woman who runs Medical Detection Dogs, which I mentioned in England, which is the really good institution. Um, she her dog, she says her dog um, told her she had breast cancer. Her dog kept nudging and nudging and nudging at her chest, and finally she got it checked out, and she had breast cancer. And I've interviewed people like this, and you know, I I believe that dogs can smell something. They're, maybe they are trying to tell us something, but then they're, you know, they're all, our dogs all the time are pushing and nudging, and, um, you know, it's a matter of, well, when do we take it seriously? And, and maybe we only hear about the times that we pushed and nudged uh, relentlessly that it was cancer. Maybe it's coincidence. So I think there is definitely more, more there than meets the eye. Well, yeah, because we went up there and we got to hang out with uh, Robert or Bob Doherty. Um, who's on the police side, but we got to see the whole like process they have set up with like the, the, the wheels and everything else. And it's all, you know, and Eric and I are just knuckle draggers. We're just trained dogs to find bombs and bite shitheads. So, um, like I'm not, <laughs> we're definitely not the science side. And, um, so it was interesting to see because they had like the entire setup up there. It was actually very cool. And, you know, I, I it's interesting. You mentioned that I had a conversation with somebody who, um, is kind of in both communities, the working dog community and the science community. And, you know, they're trying to decide, you know, like you said, what are these dogs smelling? And th there's a lot of 
nuance that goes into the side that Eric and I are very familiar with, which is why Cameron is such a great resource because the guy was, he's obviously a great trainer and he's obviously well-versed in the science side. Um, and you got guys like out of and, um, uh, Steve white and several people that are involved in both sides of it. Um, but you know, talking to this person that was more on the science side than they were on the, the handling side. And they're like, you know, we need qualified trainers to come in and qualified handlers and say, you know, this is how we do this portion of this exercise. This is how we do this. And it's interesting. You mentioned, um, the human, human odor part. Um, we were talking about that and you said, you know, the dog was learning to just find like who was handling the hot samples and who was handling not. There's an exercise in Mondio ring. Um, and it's been around forever and it's called the little woods. And it is literally an odor differentiation exercise. And every Mondio ring dog has to do it, but it, the dog is asked to go select, um, for I'm shortening this quite a bit, but the dog is asked to go select the wood that the handler was just handling. It's a, and the AKC has a very similar one, um, for fucking chihuahuas, like, you know, stay at home moms with fucking chihuahuas that, you know, don't have anything to do. And they have an odor differentiation exercise, the exact same thing. So when I mentioned this to this person, they're like, are you kidding me? I'm like, no, they've been doing it for like 35 years, man. I mean, like they teach fucking Malinois to do this all the time. And it's an odor differentiation exercise. So you have, you know, X number of, you know, the identical looking pieces of equipment. And the dog is supposed to select whichever one the handler had just had or whatever. Right. So, um, it's human, it's a human odor thing. And then when we do the tracking side, you know, we've had Jeff Shetler on and we've had, uh, I think Jay Nix talked about it, but, um, uh, and we've had other people talk, talk about tracking, but where we have contaminated tracks, so the dog is able to differentiate the odor, the, the specific human odor that they are looking for. And especially, and when we had Jack on, um, the guy from LAPD, who was the air, um, the, uh, tactical air officer who was also a canine handler, I'm talking about perimeter containment and why it's so important for canine handlers to make sure, well, for your perimeter containment guys to make sure that your, your scenes are clear and that you're, you're not contaminated because the dogs, I mean, they, I mean, they have to be taught to differentiate. If they can't, it makes it extremely difficult. But, you know, it was interesting to me to hear the science guys seem like this is a foreign concept. And I'm like, no, this is not at all foreign. And in fact, like sport people do it like fucking, you know, lawyers that do this on their weekend. Like this is something they do all the time. And they're like, no kidding. I'm like, and they act shocked. They look at me and I was like, no, I swear. I promise. And I had to strike, <laughs> pull the fucking videos on YouTube and show them. They're like, that's amazing. I'm like, uh, I mean, not really. <laughs> I mean, what you guys are doing is amazing. I mean, you're teaching dogs to find fucking cancer. But the fact that they didn't think about that and they're like, we didn't right. realize that, that they could do that. I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, why, why wouldn't why they be able to? together more and like they need right. to listen to you guys and, and like learn a lot. I think a lot of them are. But think of the shortcuts. Think of the things that they could have, like, you know, maybe worked around and the samples maybe that would have been saved if um, some of these places had, had known that. And um, there is, um, you know, there's, there's I, I traveled around the world for this book. I actually, I got to go to um, many different countries to, to do this book. And there's a, there, as I mentioned earlier, there was a, uh, there's a place in Japan that was looking at stomach cancer. Now, they actually had a whole village in northern Japan participate in this. The mayor was very concerned that his area had the highest rate of stomach cancer in all of Japan. Now, Japan has stomach cancer pretty high um, for various reasons. Um, but this area, which is 
Yeah, it's so prevalent that like when they turn 35, they test, or 35 or 40, they test for it. I mean, like it's a standard, yeah, yeah. so I mean, that's how prevalent it is. Right, right, right. And there are many reasons for it. I won't get into it in in the show, but I do get into it in the book a little bit. Um, But but it's really bad. You would not think that this rural, gorgeous, cedar-filled mountain area would be the, the seat of this. Now, no one knows exactly why. Maybe there are more old people there, but no one's quite sure. The, the aging, the population in Japan is in so many places is aging, and there are definitely older people there. It skews old, but um, but why here? And the mayor uh, heard about this doctor in the Tokyo area, uh, Masao Miyashita, and he um, and Dr. Miyashita uh, went up and, and gave a talk about the work he was doing um, with his university, and uh, and the mayor decided, you know, could you could would you want to work with us to help us? screen people for cancer. Now, that is something that is really hard to do. And he, uh, yeah, you, you guys can imagine screening people uh, as opposed to uh, laboratory settings, because in laboratory settings, someone's going to know which is the positive sample. In the, current, in the research that's going on now, screening, you don't know when to reward the dog. You don't know what sample is hot and what is not and so you lose dogs on that you know they they eventually go well i don't know you know what do you ask me to look for um the dogs the dogs actually did pretty well but it's one of those cases where uh they learned a lot they learned a lot about a lot of things um but they also learned that this the world is not ready for screening uh patients yet um they did uh, i think they did two or three years and uh, the dogs did alert to um, some people whose cancers hadn't quite been detected yet uh, through normal studies, and uh, that was that was good. Uh, there were definitely successes, but um, it shows the limitations of what these dogs can do, and and how helpful it would be to have um, really well-known protocol that you know, yeah handle the samples differently, as we just discussed, or um, whatever whatever ways of uh, the detection room is set up. Um, maybe it can be it, it can be the very best setup we know. The, the, the cutting-edge science, the very best uh, protocols need to be followed, especially where, where lives are at stake like this. And so um, I think if the communities can continue learning or being open to learning, or I wish that um, things like this were, were available around the world. And I guess they are, um, but you have to know where to look, right? Yeah, no, without a doubt. Mm. You know, it, yeah, that's a it, because I mean, you would have never. It's like it's kind of the same thing. One of my buddies um, is completely obsessed with um, what do they call these areas? Uh, like blue areas in the country. Anyway, it's where I don't know if that's what it's called of the world where people have an exceedingly long life expectancy, mm-hmm. and it's in like Sweden and Greece and not the United States. Um, but I mean, you know, people routinely live into their nineties and stuff and he is like completely fascinated with it because I guess he doesn't want to die, but, um, and he's a hypochondriac, but, um, so he, (laughs) but you're right. I mean, you have to kind of take the opportunities as they come and it, it definitely, um, because, you know, Eric and I, we get asked about this all the time. In fact, the guest right before this episode was Aaron Ferguson and she was talking about, um, some seizure alert dogs and, um, some other medical alert dogs, and I was like, I we don't I we've I've done one like like helped with a um, a uh, blood sugar dog, and which was a completely different experience for me. I was like, no, this isn't my thing, and um, so and part of it is because it was so difficult for me to like narrow down the science side of it because I have a background like I can understand it, but I'm not like a research guy, and I'm definitely not 
a scientist, but it didn't make sense to me. The stuff that we were using is kind of like source odor, um, which kind of brings me to the next point. So I'd be really hard pressed right now if I didn't bring this up because of the whatever's going on with Corona apocalypse. So um, we've been asked a couple of times kind of in private messenger and some of the things, uh, some other platforms, <laughs> Um, and I've seen it and I'm sure people listening, if you follow any of the working dog news, um, there are people that are advertising, um, COVID dogs. Um, I'm going to say, I'm not going to do one. <laughs> I pass hard pass from me. No, I'll stick with drugs and bombs and occasionally bed bugs, I guess. But, um, <laughs> like, so you mentioned like the science side, um, what what has been the prevailing kind of like um, rumors or kind of the prevailing um, not myths, but what's been coming out from the like journalistic side or what have you been hearing from the the context that you have about the COVID dogs? Well, well, it's, I'll just back up a little bit because in my book I I wrote just a short little bit about how maybe one day dogs will be used to help stop the spread of epidemics before they become pandemics or might be able to use, be used as a dogs in pandemics to help it from spreading further. I had no idea, obviously, that this would be our reality later. Um, but here we are. And indeed, people have jumped onto the COVID bandwagon with their dogs. Um, there are some really good institutions that are involved, like again, PennVet, um, yep. Auburn University's Canine Performance, science or center, whatever it is, and um, um, medical detection dogs in England um, and some others. And then there are people who are, uh, again, probably well-meaning and uh, some police forces uh, around the world, some uh, military. There's, there, there's research for, you know, strong research and maybe not, not the best uh, protocol research going on around the world right now. And besides the the institutions I mentioned, there's some France, um, Australia has some pretty good stuff going on as well. Um, Iran, Spain, Finland, uh, the UAE just came out with uh, some what looks promising, but again, I, I don't know what kind of research went into this. The Netherlands, and uh, I just wrote, I have another Facebook page before, besides Soldier Dogs. Um, it's new. It's called Dr. Dogs News, um, and I, I try to keep up with who's coming out with um, data. Um, and I, I, because most of these places don't um, they they are, have not yet published their studies. I don't know how good the work is. I've seen a couple of the dogs, so some of the videos um, of I think it was France. I don't want to. There are a couple going on in France, and ooh, um, no, not good. Uh, the dogs are. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> I every, everyone thing. listening to this has seen that video, and okay, okay, that was fucking so, terrible. So right, okay, <laughs> so we're on the we're all on the same page there. Yes. But there is some good research going on, and it will take time. And um, you know, I, I have been in touch with uh, a couple of the better places, and, you know, they're still in the early stages. They, they're, um, there may be some recognition going on. The other places are saying, um, like 90, a couple of the other places that have come out with their research, say they, they've got a 95% accuracy rate. Now, what is that? Um, and it may be great. That may, they may have really good science behind that, but I haven't seen that, so I'm not going to go to bat for that. Um, but they're they're saying the dogs can. There is a scent now. I mean, first of all, getting getting the samples is one thing, right? I mean, just who wants to be handling this? You have to nope. be 
really, really good. You have to know what you're doing. So these multidisciplinary places like um, Auburn and um, University of Pennsylvania have these teams that do this for a living. They handle these samples. They know how to get them. They have them. They they know exactly what to do with them and how to keep safe and um, ostensibly, hopefully, the dogs will stay safe. Um, but the other places like you know, um, you know, police force. I worry or or. Private trainers. I've I've heard you know a couple of people like yeah I want to do this and I'm thinking oh please no, um, and so um, there there there's some some really good research going on out there and there I think there are, is some really not good research and and they are some of the not good ones are getting headlines, so um, let's hold off and wait till these respected institutions, um, medical institutions and others, come out with their research and see what they say. And the goal, of course, isn't to detect it in behind the scenes as they're doing it now. The goal is to have dogs at checkpoints um, and entries to hospitals, airports, schools, businesses, whatever. That's the pipe dream. Um, if they can do that, if they can really do that and on real humans, which, you know, you know what that's going to be like with all the confounding factors. Um, if, but if they can somehow do this, um, like they can sniff out uh, explosives or drugs at airports or whatever, um, this would probably be their most important job ever. But um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping they can do it. But it's it's really in the hands of the people. And uh, I think the dogs, if uh, with the right people at their side, they they could do this probably. But this is a chapter that we'll we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I think this will be the. Um, by the time they figure this out, the COVID stuff, will, I I think, I personally believe will be mostly done or not done, but uh, definitely way 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 lower than what it was. And they'll probably be able to use this research for the next one to jump on that, you know, um, yeah. maybe to get ahead of some things when you hear about some stuff going on overseas or some other places. Um, I, I just don't, I personally don't see it uh, working out in a timely enough fashion for it to affect this particular pandemic. But um, Yeah, well, my dog just, agrees with you, as you can hear. Uh, <laughs> that's good. That's uh, I guess UPS finally came. Um, but, yeah, I, I, that could very well be true. And what you also said about um, maybe this could, what they're learning in this can help um, in the next one. Because I, I think you know, maybe we weren't taking the idea of pandemics that seriously. Um, and now it's got our attention and we realize this really can happen. And there are some guidelines. There are some um, – best practices that are being developed now. So if nothing else, maybe we'll be able to jump on that in a more rapid manner. Sorry, that's yeah, ongoing Gus, who's far away from me enough now that I can't stop him, but he will stop. Let me shut the door. Um, so anyway, that's it. But we'll, we'll just have to see, uh, see what comes of that. But I'm still, I'm still in shock that, you know, that this close to the publication of the book, something like this has happened. And uh, I guess we're all just uh, looking at the headlines and uh, hoping, you know, maybe the dogs, yeah, maybe they won't be needed. Who knows? Yeah, you're like the new Simpsons. You predicted. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was I was just thinking that. I was like, oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, they, you said somebody said they're ninety five percent. I don't even think the CDC's thing is ninety five percent like positive. So it ought to be interesting to see how it works out. Like I've I've seen several people talking about it. I'm like I wouldn't even know where to start. Like if somebody gives yeah. me, I mean that's not my wheelhouse. That's not my thing. Well, and when you hear ninety five percent, you know that that okay. Let's let's say let's say that the dogs were able to. 
um, say yes to positive samples 95% of the time. I haven't heard anything about the negative samples and how often they're falsely alerting to that. So the good studies will show that as well. Um, and so uh, that, that's the other side you really need to hear. And that's that's what I always look for in studies and, um, and a lot more than that. But so far, what has come out has not um, gotten even that deeply into the woods. So I'm hopeful and, and I'd love to see the dogs be the heroes of the day in this. Uh, and we'll we'll just see. The four books, are they available on, like, everything? <laughs> like Amazon, <laughs> yeah, you can buy website. Yeah, you know, well, bookstores I mean, aren't open so much anymore, and probably the first two aren't really in bookstores so much anymore. Um, but, yeah, they're, I have my website, which is mariagoodavage.com. That's like good savage without the S, um, .com. Or um, Amazon. Yeah, Amazon has all my books. Um, they used to be at bookstores, and they're your favorite online retailers, most likely. And there's some um, good audio renditions. If someone just doesn't want to read a book, you can pick them up in the audio version. I'll, I'll, they all have that. So, yeah, they're out there. And, and well, I guess libraries are also closed, but um, a lot of libraries have my books as well. Yeah, I was gonna say with if yeah, most bookstores were closed a long time ago, but it, if it didn't, COVID definitely didn't help. Um, so, <laughs> where uh, so you have the Facebook page too? You've mentioned a couple times you've got. I have uh, soldier dogs. Dog. Soldier dogs. Yeah, so Facebook.com/slash soldier dogs, um, and that's like we have we have about one hundred sixty thousand, and that's where um, my post from yesterday rests. So if you want to get updated on what's going on with the Marines dog program it's there that's the most recent post and then i have um facebook uh is dr dogs news um, i have some instagram as well but um, it's because i get into uh into words a lot uh, facebook is a better venue for what i do so yeah those and and my website keeps people up to date and uh well used to have my latest events and appearances but you know those aren't happening except on zoom but you can there's a really cute um on my website there's a really cute um dr dogs music video um and so uh, if, if people want to see that that's uh that's kind of fun and you can find that uh link on the front page of my website excellent excellent um eric where are you van s canine letter k number nine on instagram uh van s canine academy on facebook we are at uh on patreon.com working the radio and um how about you uh tedder underscore summers on instagram and uh torchlight canine letter k number nine on instagram for the kennel page and then obviously hrd police canine on both Instagram and Facebook for the HRD side. Um, HRC, HRD is still going. We just got back from Indiana. Or not just, but we got back from Indiana. Um, the next one is, I want to say, somewhere on the East Coast. I have to look. We had one canceled because of COVID um, in North Carolina. So the decoy camp is still happening um, in Valdosta, Georgia. So that's coming up um, here pretty quick. So... Get signed up for that. And by the time this airs, we should have already given away the ALM bite suit um, that uh, Canines United so gratefully um, helped pay for. And, of course, um, Arno sent it from the furnace out in <laughs> Vegas. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, that should be given away. We've got to pick a winner for that, by the way. So, yeah, um, outside of that, Maria, this has been an awesome episode, and I think it's very fitting uh, for the ladies of Canine. <laughs> um, hey, great talking I, with you guys. It's really yeah, fun. It's been fantastic. So uh, we'll put everything, everybody hearing this for um, all the show notes and stuff. We'll put up all the links to the websites and uh, where you can get everything in the show notes. But yeah, um, yeah, Maria, thanks a lot. It's been awesome. Thank you, guys. It was fun.
our oldest sponsor, our first sponsor, and our good friend, and a great dude all around, Arno at ALM Canine Equipment. Uh, his suits and his canine tugs and bite sleeves are some of the best in the industry. His, dude, I have a whole array of different uh, hidden sleeves from him of all various levels of dogs. Uh, he has a discount code for us, which is amazing, WD Radio for 10% off your first order. ALMK9Equipment.com. Give him, a, give him a shout, man. Arno is a good guy with great quality equipment. ALMK9Equipment.com. One of the original three sponsors that have been with us from the beginning is Tripwire Operations Group, LLC. They're an internationally recognized leading provider of products, services, and training for federal, state, local, and law enforcement agencies and military units. They are ATF licensed for explosive material manufacturer, importer, exporter, and dealer with a wide range of explosive products to offer, including custom kits. These kits are great for detection, canine imprinting, and they have three different kits to choose from. These three kits combined create the complete picture for the explosive threats of canines. Be sure to check them out, tripwireops.org. The music in this episode is used with permission by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at Brother Deeg, that's spelled D-E-G-E dot net. Be sure to check him out there or on iTunes, Amazon, CD Baby, or anywhere you stream media. This episode has been edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt. Visit our other sites at patreon.com, look for Working Dog Radio, hrdpolicecanine.com, and look for the nearest seminar near you. Working Dog Radio was graciously granted permission to use this music by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. That's spelled brother brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. Be sure to buy him a beer at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, or anywhere you stream your music. Working Dog Radio was edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt.